This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for children. What a joy they are, but what a responsibility we have as the people of God. Lord, as we think about raising up this last generation, this remnant of children, we pray that that your spirit would do the teaching, that you would remove from our minds and thoughts any of our preconceived notions or opinions, including especially my own, that your will would be made known. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. Can you name the three biggest events in the history of redemption? The three biggest events in the history of redemption, past or present and future. Three biggest events. Certainly the first coming of Christ would be up there, right? First coming of Christ, cross, resurrection, all of that. We'll we'll call that one. Uh, How about what we're in the middle of right now? The judgment and the soon coming of Jesus. We'll call that one event. And let's go back a little further. Something that happened in the Old Testament that was hugely pivotal in launching, pivotal in launching the redemptive movement of God's people. How about the Exodus? I would rank those three as the top three biggest, most important events in redemptive history. The Exodus, the first coming of Christ, and the judgment and second coming of Christ. Now what's interesting about these three is they all have something in common. When you take a look at the Exodus, it was a child, Miriam, who played a key role in saving her brother, Moses, and bringing about the leader of God's people. How about at the first coming of Christ? Children also announced, Hosanna to the son of David. So if this pattern holds, child, children, what about right now? And not just this, but we read this in Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students. As the children sang in the temple courts, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So in these last days, children's voices will be raised to give the last message of warning to a perishing world. This is what I was trying to get across on the stage in my 20 seconds. It's like, how do you communicate anything in 20 seconds? But there it is. The children will be giving the message. Listen, it goes on. When heavenly intelligences see that men are no longer permitted to present the truth, the Spirit of God will come upon the children, and they will do a work in the proclamation of the truth which the older workers cannot do because their way will be hedged up. In the closing scenes of this earth's history, many of these children and youth will astonish people by their witness to the truth which will be born in simplicity, yet with spirit and power. In the near future, many children will be endued with the Spirit of God and will do a work in proclaiming the truth to the world that at that time cannot well be done by the older members of the church. That's heavy, isn't it? Do you remember reading the great controversy about the children in Scandinavia during the time of the Reformation and the Advent Awakening that would just be be endued by the Spirit of God proclaiming the gospel message? It's going to happen again. And it's our children. And we have the privilege of raising up that remnant. What, it just gives me chills to think about what's coming. I can't wait. So you might say, well, I'm not a parent. Is this seminar for me? I see some young people here. First of all, if you're a church member, then this issue of parenting matters to all of us because the children of the church are the responsibility of all of us and not just the parents. But also, before taking upon themselves the responsibilities of father and motherhood, I'm talking to the youth now, before you look into this thing of, hey, maybe I'd be uh, of marriageable age soon and I'd be looking for a potential spouse who I, who I would want to train and educate children for the Lord with. Before you do that, 
Men and women should become acquainted with the laws of physical development, with physiology and hygiene, with the bearing of prenatal influences, with the laws of heredity, sanitation, dress, exercise, the treatment of disease. They should also understand the laws of mental development, moral training. To assume this responsibility of parenthood without such preparation is a sin. So, pretty serious statement that we don't head into adulthood without thinking about the issues at stake and becoming prepared. And you might say, well, that's a lot. Uh, that's quite a list. How, how am I supposed to do all that? Parents may well inquire who is sufficient for these things. Becoming a parent is kind of an intimidating, scary thing if you think you're doing it in your own strength. Because you're going, I can't pull this off. I can't form and develop a little child's character and do all of these things and be a Bible teacher and be all of these things to my children. Well, parents may well inquire, who is sufficient for these things? God alone is their sufficiency. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, another thing, though. What else happened? Exodus. First coming of Christ. Second coming of Christ. What else happened at that time that should make us take up and sit up and take warning? In the time of the Exodus, the, you had the Pharaoh issuing the edict to throw all the Jewish babies in the Nile. How about at the first coming of Christ? Did something similar happen? Yes, killing the children in and around Bethlehem. So my question is, if at the first, the first time around the, the children were under the attack of the enemy, can we expect that same thing? And that's what this session particularly is about. I hope you're staying throughout the six sessions. This session will be very different from the others in that session one, we are looking at the outsourcing of parenting and its tragic results. What American families have done to hand over the parenting of their children to the media and to the schools of our land. And it is Satan's attack upon our children. So let's get into that. Messages to young people. Page 163, the powers of darkness strive to gain control of the human mind. That is the aim and goal, to control the minds of the children. That's the enemy's goal. Now, this is not just something Satan is doing. It's actually the parents themselves give their children to Satan with their own hands, like the apostate Jews making them pass through the fire of Molech. That's a pretty serious comparison, isn't it? Just like the Jews of old would hand their children over to be sacrificed to Molech, we are doing the same thing in the 21st century in our time. Parents handing their children over to Satan with their own hands, letting the media, letting strangers raise their children. But we should be watching with jealous care the first approach of the wily foe. This is a serious quote. You are not secure a moment against the attacks of Satan. You have no time to rest from watchful, earnest labor. You should not sleep a moment at your post. This is a most important warfare. Eternal consequences are involved. It is life or death with your family. Now that one really brings home to me the seriousness, the significance of this issue of parenting. I can't just go into this in a cavalier manner thinking that there is, it's no big deal. It's a huge deal. Eternal interests are involved. It's life or death. So for the remainder of this session, we're going to pull from two seminars of mine, Media on the Brain and School. Now, I did this one last year at GYC, so I'm going to do very little on media this morning. But this latest series that I have just put together called Schooled traces the history of modern American schooling and how we have the system of education that we have today, who were the architects of that system, and, and what are its results, what was their agenda. So we're going to get into both of these today, but I want to take us way back way back in American history. History was my, my trade. I was a history teacher for eight years of those 11 years of teaching, Bible teacher for the last three years. But do you know when in American history the first telegraph was sent? If you don't know what the telegraph is, this was when 
telecommunications was born. You can now communicate instantaneously, simultaneously, across distances by the tap of a little electric signal, the Morse code communicating ideas. Do you know when the telegraph, the first telegraph was sent? 1844. So the media as we know it, if you will, was born in 1844. The same year, as you know, the Advent movement had the great disappointment and launched the Seventh-day Adventist church thereafter. How about Horace Mann? Have you ever heard of this guy before? He's the founder, or the father of modern public education. It was also in the years, 1843 and 1844, that he tra traveled to the kingdom of Prussia. Now, Prussia was known for its schooling system, and America had no school system to speak of. It was homeschooling, one-room schoolhouses, very traditional, rural, agrarian, self-sustaining type of culture. And he said, we want to bring the Prussian system of schooling to America. He traveled to Prussia. He observed their schools. They weren't in session, so he didn't learn much about them. But he came back as an expert on Prussian schooling and advocated to the Boston, Massachusetts School Committee in his seventh annual report in 1844 that we bring the Prussian system of schooling to America. We're going to talk more about that for the remainder of the session also. But this individual on the screen is a Prussian schooling philosopher. He's known as the prophet of modern schooling. His name is Wilhelm Wundt. And he, during his 70-year career, look at the years his career of, of writing about education spanned. It kind of looks like the career of some other prophet I know of. 1853 to 1920, almost exactly the same time period that Ellen White was, was writing her writings. Wilhelm Wundt wrote 53,735 pages. So not quite as much as the 200,000 that the prophet of the Lord used and uh, wrote. But Interestingly, 1844, you're starting to see these, these histories run parallel to each other, aren't you? And not just that, but this is a statement from the, probably the most important American philosopher of education, John Dewey. Every teacher should realize he is a social servant set apart for the maintenance of the proper social order. The teacher always is the prophet of the true God and the usher in of the true kingdom of God. So while the Advent movement is ushering in the true kingdom of Christ with his soon coming, we have a counterfeit emerging, a social engineered society, the proper social order coming in through the school system. That's the true kingdom of God, he said. And the teacher is the true prophet. So we have counterfeit prophets. We have somebody writing almost the exact same period. We have 1844. Are you noticing these histories are running parallel? Fascinating, fascinating. So let's get into the history of modern media and, and schooling. I want to start with media, very, just very brief on media. I found this quotation from James U. McNeil. He's the pioneer of marketing to children. Now, back in the day, children were not targets of the the advertising industry. They advertised to adults because it was considered unethical to advertise to children. They can't reason through things. And, but but he, he charted new territory, McNeil did. He said, the consumer embryo begins to develop during the first year of existence. Children begin their consumer journey in infancy. And they certainly deserve consideration as consumers at that time. So today, a baby, a, a, a child in their first year of existence, just a few months old, is now considered to be a consumer. So it's from the very beginning that the devil has his sights set on our children. And it's had huge success. A recent report from the American Academy of Pediatrics found that commercial media is radically transforming the way children play. We're talking about child development in this series. Play is essential. The report found that even though free and unstructured play is essential to cognitive, physical, social, and emotional well-being of children, the amount of time that six to eight-year-olds spend playing creatively has been declining dramatically over the 1990s. 
As for 19, 9, 9 to 12-year-olds over the same period, creative play has declined a staggering 94%. Now, if you struggle with math, <laughs> let me explain what a 94% decline is. If the kids used to play creatively this much, a 94% decline takes it down to 6% of what it used to be. So children used to invent their own, their own play, right? But today, they get the script given to them by the movie, by the show, by the video game, and they act those things out with their action figures or with whatever, and it's just, it's not creative anymore. 95% decline. Or they're just playing the video game and not doing any play in the three-dimensional real world. Very, very serious things for development. Now, they live immersed in a, in a world of characters. Children bond emotionally at very early ages. God gave them that because they're supposed to be bonding with mom and dad, particularly till ages 8 or 10. And during these early years of emotional bonding, rather than bonding with mom and dad, they're forming, as weird as this sounds, but they're forming deep, intimate bonds with their favorite fictional characters. And the characters are everywhere. They're plastered on the posters and the bedsheets and the lunchboxes and everything. Everything. You see it everywhere you go. And I, I, I've experienced this in my own family. We did the potty training thing with Levi, and we were, we were you know, amping this up with him. We were like, all right, Levi, we're going to go to the store and get you your first big boy underwear, right? This is a big deal in the life of a small child. And so we said, what kind of underwear should we get? Like, should we find some with stripes or with colors and trying to make it fun, right? Because it's kind of scary, right, for a two-year-old to go, uh, what's happening here, you know? Uh, but we, so we got to the store, and we looked for the underwear on the shelf with color on it, and we could not find a single pair of underwear with color on it that didn't have characters. And we don't do the character thing so much in our house. And so I'm going, man, this stuff is everywhere, even invading the most private areas of our children's lives. Very interesting how the media is getting in to the children's lives in every way. And it's called neuromarketing. The advertisers today know specifically how to use their, their high-tech 21st century propaganda tools that are multi-billion dollar tools they're using to access the minds of, of the children and the youth for that matter. And so they make the advertising hypnotically programming, even to adults, completely irresistible to children. Now, Lucy Hughes was asked about this in a documentary. She was an advertising executive, and she says, and somebody asked me, Lucy, is that ethical? You're essentially manipulating these children. Well, is it ethical, she asks the interviewer. Her answer, I don't know. So we have an industry that has asked themselves the question, is it ethical to manipulate children like this? And their answer is, I don't know. Now, Lucy Hughes is not the bad guy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and darkness. So I don't mean to just pick on her, but this is the mentality of the media elite. It is we, well, here, here's what she says. Our role at initiative is to move products. And if we know you move products with a certain creative execution placed in a certain type of media vehicle, then we've done our job. Children are tomorrow's consumer, tomorrow's adult consumer. So start talking with them now, build that relationship when they're younger, and you've got them as an adult. You've got them. Isn't that amazing? It's reminiscent of MTV founder Robert Pittman, who said the strongest appeal you can make is emotionally. If you can get their emotions going, make them forget their logic, you've got them. You've got them. This, is, this seems to be a refrain I'm hearing. At MTV, we don't shoot for the 14-year-olds. We own them. Now, it's not just 14-year-olds, it's the children in general, but particularly the tweens actually are the high, most highly marketed to group in America today, the 8 to 12-year-old range, because if they can inculcate you and in, in, induct you into the teenage culture, the teenage culture is, it has its own rules, its own styles, its own dress, its own way of talking, its own music, huge big business for the media elite, and our children are the targets. And of course, we can just choose to break free from that, like many have done. How about Steve Jobs? You've heard of that name before, right? 
when the iPad was coming out, a journalist interviewed him and they asked him, boy, uh, Mr. Jobs, I'll bet you your kids are just getting a kick out of the iPad, right? Because it was just hitting the store shelves and he figured that his kids had been playing with it for, for months. He says, my, my children have never, never touched an iPad. The interviewer was shocked. He's going, what in the world? The Jobs family had dinner around the table, not with devices in front of them, but they had conversations about history, about interesting ideas, about world events. How about these individuals? Chris Anderson, former editor of Wired Magazine, Alex Constantinople. All of these people, Evan Williams, Leslie Gold, have one thing in common. They are people who, who were heading up big media organizations. And when asked in interviews about their own media practices with their children, they would come out and say, oh, our children, no, they don't have any, any entertainment media. They don't do the video games at all during the week. Maybe we'll have like half an hour of you know, TV time on, on the weekend where we do something together. They had very strict standards in their families. And these are the, the folks putting out the media who are in, in the industry. They know, right? How about Madonna, Steven Spielberg, Helen Hunt, William Macy, Tom Cruise? If you've ever been plugged into entertainment media, you know those names. What do these people all have in common? Same thing. Very strict standards in their family's media because they know how it can capture the minds of children. Very interesting how those things have come out. Now that's just media. I, I won't say anything more. Media on the brain. It's over at the booth if you want to pick that up. Enough said on that, but what I really want to get into this morning in this first session is the schooling issue, because we're talking about training and educating our children. Yes, we don't want to outsource our parenting to the media. Kids have an average of 53 hours of screen time, and I think most of us are aware that that's problematic, not only because of the content that's being put out, but because of the manipulative effects that, that, that I won't go into. But most of us have come to admire, or at least trust, the, the sacred American institution of, of the school. And I want to take a look at where we got our style of schooling from in America, and what its intentions are. And, and right here on the screen, I just snapped this uh, picture of myself out of my mom's photo album. This is me going to my first day of school at age four. This was actually kindergarten. I started at age three in preschool, but a little little brother there saying goodbye to me and uh, you know so I've been in school involved in schools from age three to age 33 I was in the school business as either a student or a teacher I've, I've experienced 13 different schools a bunch of different kinds of districts from rural to urban to uh, Christian charter schools public schools Adventist schools all of it and so having come from that environment I want to say to anybody who's involved one-third of America is involved in the business of education in some way this this what you're about to hear is not meant to be a criticism of of the people involved in it it's kind of like when we do a prophecy seminar and we talk about the institution of, of Roman Catholicism we say you know that fulfilled prophecies in Revelation well you're not trying to be mean to Catholics right same thing here so this isn't this isn't meant to be an, a, a blame game of any kind but when we understand the origins of American public education where it came from and what the aims were it will be an eye-opener so I want to begin with back in the day in America if you go back to the 1880s just 130 years ago what you find if you pick up a, the, the the fifth grade student textbook the fifth grade reader what were children in fifth grade reading they were reading Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. Now, I have a master's degree in political science, economics, and history. I have a hard time digesting what these guys are trying to say when they write, okay? At that level of education, it's difficult for me. Fifth graders were reading it 150 years ago, 130 years ago, and I'm going, what? How did they understand this? This is George Washington from his farewell address. See if you can get this, okay? The acceptance of and continuance hitherto in the office, it, the office to which your suffragists have twice called me 
have been a uniform sacrifice of inclination to the opinion of duty and to a deference for what appeared to be your desire. I constantly hoped that it would have been much earlier in my power, consistent with motives which I was not at liberty to disregard, to return to that retirement from which I had been reluctantly drawn. The strength of my inclination to do this previous to the last election had even led to the preparation of an address to declare it to you. But mature reflection on the then perplexed and critical posture of our affairs with foreign nations and the unanimous advice of persons entitled to my confidence impelled me to abandon the idea. How many of you feel you could sum that up in a succinct sentence? A handful. I figure I maybe, maybe five hands in a group this size. Whoa! Fifth graders were reading that? How is that possible? Um, the amazing thing is, though, that was 1880s, right? It was written, obviously, in the 1790s. But in, in the 1880s, kids were reading that and, in fifth grade and understanding it. Well, how about fast forward now 100 years, 100 years and change, after a century of compulsory public schooling in America, after being schooled full-time for 13 years, K through 12, after spending 15,000 hours approximately in school and on schoolwork by the age of 18, after the average kid has had $156,000 spent on his public education over 13 years, after all this effort to help us become more intelligent, this is the kind of farewell address we listened to most recently. I have experienced setbacks. There are things I would do differently if given the chance. Yet I have always acted with the best interests of our country in mind. I have followed my conscience and done what I thought was right. You may not agree with some tough decisions I have made, but I hope you can agree that I was willing to make the tough decisions. Do you see the difference between that George and the other George? Now, by the way, this is not a commentary on his intelligence. He does, the presidents don't write their own speeches. They're writing these speeches for the intelligence of the population. And I put this into a... Uh, uh, a readability index, you can just plug it right in there, just paste the paragraph in it, it takes a bunch of different uh, grade level indices, and, and so they, you average them all out. This is, this is written at a fifth grade reading level. George W. Bush's farewell address, fifth grade reading level. What was fifth grade 130 years ago? That insane crazy paragraph that I read. So fifth grade is not what it once was, is it? I pasted the other one in too, George Washington's, 19th grade. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> that's like seven years past. So that's master's degree, basically, which is what I was explaining. I had a difficult time with it, right? So between 1940 and 2000, black illiteracy doubled in America. White illiteracy quadrupled. Presently, 50% of the population in America, believe it or not, is either illiterate or functioning at low levels of literacy. Only 18 to 21% are fully functionally literate. And that might come as a surprise because you're like, what? People can sound out the words and say... Literacy is comprehension. It's not just being able to say the word right in the sentence. So the, the, the literacy of our country has taken a massive decline. American students who used to rank at the top internationally now rank 23rd out of 65 industrialized countries in math. In all subjects, the longer American kids are in school, the worse they measure up to other countries. Yet in the last half of the 20th century, schooling in America exploded. Teacher salaries rose 50%. And that's inflation-adjusted dollars. Class sizes dropped 40%. The non-teaching bureaucracy grew 500%. And money spent on public education increased threefold. Kids now spend longer in school than ever before. And young adults are getting college degrees at higher rates than ever before. Yet only 31% of college-educated Americans can fully comprehend a newspaper story, which is written at today's like fifth to eighth grade reading levels. 30% of Americans cannot identify the Pacific Ocean on a blank map. 
And 26% of Americans actually believe the sun revolves around the earth. So we're like back in dark ages kind of mentality here in a lot of ways. This is, I don't know what to call this, the MTV generation or whatever. The, I mean, we, we know a whole lot about the, the sports scores, but we have no idea about the basics of our solar system or how to read. So we're in a very serious situation, and obviously, I don't have to tell you this, this has last day's implications. The powers of darkness strive to control the human mind, and that's exactly what's happening through the systems that the devil has brought about in our day. We, we read from Christian Education, Mrs. White wrote, Close reasoners and logical thinkers are few, for the reason that false influences had checked the development of the intellect. So this was already starting to come in in her day. So let's trace that history. Now, it's just like in Daniel's day. Do you remember when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came into Babylon? What was the first thing the Babylonians do? They said, get these young men, school them in the wisdom of the Babylonians and the literature of the Babylonians, right? And it is a social control mechanism. Same thing throughout history. In the Dark Ages, the goal was to keep people in the dark, right? And we don't want them to be able to read. We don't want the Bible in their own language. If we can keep the population ignorant, then we can keep them manageable and managed by the power elite, the priest class, the Roman papacy. And that sort of uh, exploded when Gutenberg came around. You know who Gutenberg is, right? Invented the printing press. Now all of a sudden everybody's learning to read and they have wide access to literature. They're able to read the Bible in their own language, read the Reformation tracts. So the Roman papacy founded an organization to counter that, the counter-reformation of the Jesuit order. Now the Jesuits, interestingly, had a method of education. We read about it from Bertrand Russell, a 20th century historian, an atheist, who just writes about education and social control. And he writes that the Jesuits provided one sort of education for the boys who were to become ordinary men of the world, and another for those who were to become the members of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit Society. Ordinary men and women will be expected to be, are you ready for this? This is Jesuit education. This is the style of education that the Counter-Reformation brought in. It was to have the vast majority, the masses, the ordinary men have a certain style of education, and here it is. They were expected to be docile, industrious, punctual, thoughtless, and contented. So you keep the masses under your control. That was Jesuit-style education. Now, it wasn't just Jesuit. It became called, a, called Prussian education. Today, it's called Prussian schooling because the Prussians really brought this into their, their national system. They were defeated by Napoleon's army. And after that defeat, the Prussians said, never again. We are a proud, militaristic society, and we will have a population of well-trained, well-drilled soldiers and and industrial workers so that we can be the strongest kingdom in all of Europe. And so as a part of that, they brought in schooling and revamped their school system along Jesuit lines. And here's, here's the philosopher behind uh, Prussian education, Johann Gottlieb Fichte. He said very bluntly, you got to appreciate the Germans, they're very blunt. He said, education should provide the means to destroy free will. So he wasn't beating around the bush. We want to destroy the free will of the population so they will be compliant in our hands. The rest of the quotation goes like this. If you want to influence the student at all, you must do more than merely talk to him. You must fashion him. And fashion him in such a way that he cannot, simply cannot will otherwise than what you wish him to will. 
see the system of control that was brought to the kingdom of Prussia. So Prussian schooling was known as a system where, where they brought the kids in very young, age five, compulsory schooling. You must have your children in school at age five. They had a teacher training and certification program so that the teachers would be under the control of the system, a national curriculum, national testing system, and a full school year. Not just a term, not just a, a period where you study for a time, but a school year, 42 weeks. So not, not all 52 weeks, but 42 week school year, um, similar to some other places you might know, because in fact the overall Prussian schooling system served as a model for the educational system in other German states and another number of other countries, including the United States. Because remember, Horace Mann traveled to Prussia. He came back from Prussia and said, let's bring the system here. And it happened. Now, American schools weren't Prussianized overnight. During the 19th century, there's still a lot of good education going on. But it was at the time of the Industrial Revolution, late 19th century, late 1800s in America. The big industrialists are now having these massive mega factory complexes, and you have to have a compliant industrial workforce who will follow orders. And so the Prussian system would fit perfectly for the social elites, the social controllers of American society. And this is, this is why real education, true education, if you're able to think and read and ponder and question the reality that's presented to you, this is a threat. It's a threat to the established power structure. So the U.S. Bureau of Education actually referred to, in 1872, the problem of educational schooling. There's too much education happening. They're actually learning and thinking and reading and studying too much. They decried the fact that inculcating knowledge in the, in the working class enables them to perceive and calculate their grievances. Such an enabling is bound to retard the growth of industry. So you hear the ideas here. We don't want educational schooling. We want the Prussian-style schooling. 1888 report of the Senate Committee said something similar. We believe that education is one of the principal causes of discontent of late years manifesting itself among the laboring classes. Remember, Bertrand Russell said the Jesuit system was to keep people content, docile, and thoughtless. And this is what started to come into America. The education, National Education Association in the 19-teens criticized American bookish curricula, where, where you're reading deep intellectual treatises. By the way, in Prussian system, they would teach the children the rudiments of literacy. So there was an illusion of education, but it was not deep thinking, dialogue, debate, a lot of you know, rhetoric and, and real serious heavy lifting intellectually. And in the American system, they said, we want to do away with that bookish stuff. It's responsible for leading tens of thousands of boys and girls away from pursuits for which they are adapted. What do you think they mean there? Pursuits for which they are adapted. I'll give you a hint. It's right there. Right? We want them to be part of the human resource system. Scientific management was a field of study <clears throat> put out by Frederick Winslow Taylor. <clears throat> Excuse me. He founded this system that, that infected all of American uh, social life. Everything was to be of a scientifically organized and crafted order. He said, in the past, man has been first. In the future, system must be first. What I demand of the worker is not to produce any, more, any longer by his own initiative. We don't want people to have initiative, independence, self-reliance, and you know, that sort of thing. He says, we just want to ex them to execute punctiliously the orders given down to their minutest detail. Very clear. Now, the, the clearest statements come from the very founders of this system. The, the John D. Rockefeller Education Board are the ones that funded public education in America. They funded Columbia Teachers College, which put out all the teachers and administrators, that, the vast majority of them, that were crafting the system in the early 20th century. The, the Education Board of the Rockefeller Foundation said the following in 1913. 
In our dreams, we have limitless resources, and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. The present educational conventions, which by the way were the more bookish curricula, more like deep, deep learning, the present educational conventions fade from their minds, and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural folk who were becoming urban at the time, moving from rural to urban settings. We shall not try to make any of these children or into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We have not to raise up from among them authors, editors, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we have ample supply. Isn't that an amazing statement? We've got enough of the, of the class of individuals that are doing these responsible things. We just want a human resource class of industrial laborers who will yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. Amazing statement. A similar statement from William Torrey Harris, who was, probably did more than anybody to Prussianize American schooling. He was the commissioner of U.S. education. 1906, he said the following. 99 students out of 100 are automata, or automatons, robots. Now, when I first read that, I thought, okay, well, that's gonna, he's going to criticize that. He's going to say, man, the school system is producing a bunch of non-thinking, robotic, you know, industrial slaves. He's actually saying this is a good thing. Let's read on. 99 students out of 100 are automatons, careful to walk in prescribed paths, careful to follow the prescribed custom. This is not an accident, but the result of substantial education, which scientifically defined. Are you ready for the definition of education according to the architects of American public schooling? Scientifically defined, education is the subsumption of the individual. Doesn't that sound a lot like Johann Gottlieb Fichte, who said education exists to destroy the free will? He's saying this, we want to subsume the individuality of the student into the greater collective. Do you see how this has last day's implications? This is hugely important. In the last days, the whole world wandered after the beast. In the last days, so many unthinking people will just wander after this system without being able to discern truth from error. Well, this is just tradition. This is just what we do. And this system has been setting this up for over 100 years, and it has worked. In a recent study on divergent thinking, divergent thinking means the ability to think independently, creatively. You're not just you know, thinking within the box that's presented to you. In a study on divergent thinking, children aged 3 to 5, I love this, 98% of them scored at what would qualify as a creative genius. If you've ever spent any time with this age group, you know that they are just like, they go off in a direction you didn't intend for them to go, right? One time I was with my son Levi, and we were, I had a very serious talk with him about not going down to the lake uh, when, when, you know, when mom and dad aren't with you because, you know, he doesn't know how to swim. And so I said, Levi, now this is how it works. If you ever want to go down to the lake, no, 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 you got to come ask mom and dad. I spent like two or three minutes at every different angle explaining this as clearly as I could. And he was two at the time, two and a half maybe, and uh, about, about two. And he was just getting to the point where he could understand what I'm saying and he could repeat it back. And I'm like, this is, I've got it. I've been so clear here. <laughs> and then he, I go, so Levi, you only go down to the lake if, he says, I have my bucket, my shovel, and my seahorse. <laughs> Divergent thinking. <laughs> In his mind, the whole time, he's thinking, go down by the lake and have his, his play toys. But interestingly, here's the tragic part. This, this, gets, this gets annihilated from children. After five years of schooling, they retested the same children, and only 32% still had the same genius in them. This inborn genius that God gave us to be able to think, a power akin to that of the Creator, the power to think and to do. 
That our children should be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. Only 32% have that left after five years of schooling. After five more years, only 10% have it. And by age 25, only 2% of the population remains as divergent thinkers. Do you understand now why the road to life is narrow and the road to destruction is broad and many, find, and many enter through it? Now, th when this system was coming in, it didn't come in without any uh, conflict. Uh, in 1914, there was a, a, a spontaneous rebellion emerged in New York City, especially among the German immigrant, immigrants because they had seen Prussian education, which, by the way, ended up producing Nazi, Nazi Germany, didn't it? Uh, and they had seen that, and they said, this, we don't want this for our children. You're putting our children on half rations of education. And there were there, people marched in the streets, smashed windows. By the way, these are not the good guys. In history, there's usually bad guys A and bad guys B. So these are not the heroes of the story. We should not smash windows. Just a quick disclaimer there. But, um, and, and, and also, even in, in the very beginning, when Massachusetts passed the first compulsory schooling law in American history in 1852, they said to parents, you must send your children to the school now. It's no longer you know, optional. It's a law. And the parents were like, no, we don't. what are you talking about? This is not how we do things here in America. And so to enforce the system, many parents who were resistant to it, they actually had to bring the militia out and march children to school in the 1850s. So this system didn't come in without any conflict. In fact, there were voices in the wilderness like our own in Christian education saying many parents have kept their children at school nearly the year round. Prussian style, right? The monotony of continual study wearies the mind. We also read, here little children have to spend from three to five hours a day breathing air that is laden with impurity in, a, in an enclosed classroom with a bunch of different people. Can you imagine a situation where children have to sit in a classroom for three hours a day? <laughs> By the way, if, if, come back for session uh, six on Sabbath and we're talking about God's method of education because I know that this is all like, man, We've really gotten ourselves in a mess here. And isn't it great that we don't just stop there and be like, okay, goodbye now, and what do we do with that? Well, we, we wake up to the danger we find ourselves in so we can ask God, how do we do it differently? We want to see how stark the contrast can be by, between the way the world does it and the way that God's people do it. So session six is also on, on educating and training our own children as parents and as teachers, and it's, it's for all of us and as church members. But continuing on with this, and I should say, the, the, the next three sessions right after this while I'm talking about what's coming. The next three sessions after this are, are, are the more the parenting seminar proper, if you will. It's where we're going through the, 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 the strategies and methods that successful parents have had in the research and how it lines up exactly with Spirit of Prophecy. Those three sessions are what I'm most excited to share with you. So continuing on with this one though, the system of grading, and this is talking about age segregating the students, Eight-year-olds with eight-year-olds, 11-year-olds with 11-year-olds, that kind of grading is sometimes a hindrance to the pupil's real progress. One of the features of, of, of Prussian-style education sort of runs contrary to the traditional one-room schoolhouse or the homeschool concept where you have children of various ages learning within the same context, which older can learn from younger and so on. So more on that in session six. But it is not merely a system of economic control. I want to share a couple more quotations from social engineers who've said they will use this system for also social control, not just economic control. The 1969 document from the federal government on, on, on education defines, this is from the Department of Education, it defines education as a means to achieve important economic and social goals of a national character. So it's not about educating our children. It's not about helping them to become artists and poets and men of letters and doctors and lawyers and all these things. It's about social control, creating a society. Education does not mean teaching people to know what they do not know. It means teaching them to behave as they do not behave. 
So it's behavior modification. It's behaviorism, if you will, social control. Harold Rugg called it the scientific reconstruction of our social order. He said, a new public mind is to be created. How? Only by creating tens of millions of individual minds. So they believe that the child's mind is a blank slate and they can write upon it and create it. So we create, counterfeit creator here, right? We create the mind of your child and then we weld it together with all the others into the great collective. Subsume their individuality into the collective. And you weld them into a new social mind. Through the schools of the world, we shall disseminate a new conception of government, one that will embrace all the activities of men, one that will postulate the need of scientific control. Again, last day's significance here with a system of government that says we now bear sway over religious convictions, over this, we have more control over the society. 1903, the greatest book on education ever written, other than the Bible, is the book Education. But unfortunately, 1903, well, the book Education was the not, not the most popular book in America. The most popular book in the turn of the century was Edward Ellsworth Roth's called Social Control. Ross's social control just absolutely took the academia by storm. All of the different fields from psychology to sociology to education all were talking about this issue of how can we control society. And he said the following, to collect little plastic lumps, little plastic lumps of human dough from private households and shape them on the social needing board. This is their aim, to collect the children from the private households and shape them on the social needing board. I need to share a clip with you of somebody recently who's on the news saying this. I, I won't spill the beans. Just keep coming. I'll find a way to sneak that in. If I forget, say, Scott, you said you were going to show us a clip. When are we going to see that? Okay, because I don't want to forget. It's just like this, except it's a modern example of it. Somebody saying the same thing today. Arthur Calhoun wrote the, the, definitiv the definitive history of the American family. It sort of gave this generation of social engineers their perspective on the dying institution of the family. And he said, the child passes more and more into the custody of community experts who are qualified to perform the complexer functions of parenthood. So the child goes from being, well, let me just quote Elwood Coverley, very important guy in the educational developments. He said, the attitude toward the child is likely to change. Each year, the child is, becoming, is coming to belong more to the state and less and less to the parent. The plea in defense that the child is my child will not be accepted much longer by society. And that is the direction we've headed in a very serious way. And that's where that video clip comes in that I need to share with you. But I'll share it later when I have it available. It is to be expected, said Bertrand Russell, that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they now even have, even in totalitarian countries. So he said, in the West, with our systems of social control, we can have more control over the population even than communists and Nazis and fascists can have. Fichte laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. And then he says, through diet, injections, and injunctions, they will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable. And any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Total social control, right? Total mind control. And this is why Mrs. White wrote, it is no longer safe to send them to the public schools. This is a public school. Not, a, not an unclear statement. Do our children receive from the teachers in the public schools ideas that are in harmony with the word of God? Is sin presented as an offense to God? Is obedience to all the commandments of God taught? And that is a very, very good question for us. So today, 
almost the whole life of the child is spent eating, sleeping, sitting at a desk, and sitting in front of a screen. We've got media and schooling as the reality for children today. What happened to life? We're going to talk about how to do life with our children over the next five sessions, particularly the next three and the last session. Thousands of children are perishing in their sins because of the failure of their parents to rule the home wisely. The sin of parental neglect is almost universal. Many children will rise up in the judgment and condemn their parents for not restraining them and charge upon them their destruction. The blood of their souls will rest upon the unfaithful parents. These are strong statements, but brethren, do we need some strong medicine sometime from the Lord? He's willing, he loves us enough to rebuke and chasten and say the things that we need to hear. So is there hope? Absolutely there's hope. Do you have your Bible? Turn to Deuteronomy 6. We're going to be hitting this one a number of times over the next few sessions because this scripture is so foundational to what it, means, what it means to be God's people. In Deuteronomy 6, it refers to the commandments of God and what are we are to be doing with that as the people of God. And we'll close with this. Take a break before we go into the more um, specific parenting seminar sessions. Deuteronomy 6, and let's start in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And this is the picture God has given for us that we will flesh out over a number of hours today and tomorrow and Sabbath. But I want to close this session with a word of prayer as we, as we head into our break. And for the next three sessions, for, for just so you can see, I have a, just a brief preview of what's coming. Um, and then, and then after, after the prayer, I'll, I'll say something just to the folks in the room that won't be for, for the audio, just, to, just some business items for you guys. But over the next three sessions, for those listening on the audio and those in the room, we're looking at the most recent findings from the research on how spiritually strong young adults were raised, what kind of parenting produced them. And we're going to see hand in glove. It fits exactly with what we read from our parenting councils. And it, it's going to be, we're going to be moving fast. We're going to be flying through it. And um, we'll start with, well, I won't give you the overview. Just come back. You'll, uh, you'll get a lot out of it. I'm certain of it. So let's close in prayer and then I'll just have a word with you guys just briefly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for warnings, reproof, rebuke, correction. And um, Lord, we know we've, we've been warned. We've seen Satan's battle plan unmasked to try to take over the minds of the people in these last days, particularly the children. And Lord, we, we love our children. We know you love them even more. And so we pray that you'd give us wisdom and, 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 and tact and balance and, and, and a, a Christ-like attitude to how we raise and educate our children. As we think more about this in the coming sessions, we pray for your continued spirit to guide our thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen. To um, the folks in the room real quick, um, I can't, I, I don't know if you knew this, last year at GYC the sessions were 75 minutes, and this year they're 50. So I, I had to amputate and cut a ton from the presentations. I, I was preparing 75-minute presentations. My bad. It's not GYC's fault. But um, basically, everything that I'm sharing with you today are condensed versions from that 
pile of DVDs right there. If you haven't been to our booth, be sure to stop by there because if, you, if you're jumping to different seminars, seeing different things today, missing some of what I'm saying, or even if you attend all six of, of my sessions, it's still just a fraction of the parenting and media material that, that we have available. So the schooled thing, you can pre-order that up there, learn more about the history that's up there, and, and, and all of the, the, the remnant stuff, raising the remnant, how to raise the remnant, and the classroom of the remnant is all up there. Um, you can get all the parenting stuff up uh, at the booth, and I'm j when I'm at GYC, I just want to give you a hint, and this is why I didn't want this on the audio, because I don't want those people to feel bad. They go to my website and order DVDs and learn and share the truth and praise the Lord, and it funds our ministry. But at GYC, this is where the youth are. And so I always want to make it way, 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 way easier at GYC to get our materials. So if you're ever going to get Belt of Truth Ministries materials, this would be the time. It's going to be the easiest for you. So you can get multiple copies and share them if, if, you, if you're a person of means to support our ministry and get more, more truth out there. If you're younger, money's tighter, this would be the time to, to, to pick some of these up. So I won't get, you, get into all the details of what these are. That's coming. But I'll give you your break now because it is... Uh, 9.50, so I'll see you in, it's 9.51, I'll see you in nine minutes for Raising the Remnant Part 2. So, blessings. What's that? The clip. Ah, she's asking for the clip. I'll, I'll show the clip during the break. How about that? You can stick around if you want. It's like 10 seconds long only. Hi there. How are you? Good to see you. I don't know. We'll see. Once it's everybody's responsibility and not just the households, then we start making better investments. We have never invested as much in public education as we should have because we've always had kind of a private notion of children. Your kid is yours and totally your responsibility. We haven't had a very collective notion of these are our children. So part of it is we have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. Once it's everybody's responsibility and not just the households, then we start making better investments. Did you catch it? We need to have a more collective view of our children, that they belong to the community and not to families. The children don't belong to their parents. Whew, that's heavy, that's serious. Be warned, God's people, be warned. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.